Jesus Christ, You are the great authority over all created things. The universe belongs to You. And we accept and believe tonight that You are the authority over our hearts and our lives. And so in submission to You, we come to You asking that Your Spirit take us into Your Word and that You'd open our hearts to receive Your truth. In Jesus' name, Amen. Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uts. It's not us, after all. It's Uts. I think someone was walking along at some point. They tripped and they said, Uts. And someone said, oh, that's what this is called. So the land of Uts, whose name was Job, or Eob. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions were also 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle... Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Job is the consummate good guy. And contrary to the popular quote, a good man is not hard to find. In fact, good people are everywhere. Everywhere you look, there are good people in the world doing good things with good intentions. But the problem is, good is never good enough. Good doesn't qualify a person even for a relationship with a perfect God. Only perfection does that. While Job had obviously turned from evil, what was needed was for him to turn to the Lord. Because there remains too much Job in Job. You realize that? When you turn from evil, it's all about what you've done. It's how you have done a righteous thing. You have chosen to do good things. You have conquered. You have said no to evil. But when you turn to the Lord, it's no longer about you. It's about Him. And when I turn to the Lord, my whole perspective changes. I realize the insurmountable chasm between my goodness and His goodness. It's a chasm spanned only by grace. So the primary message of the book of Job, as we began, is not an answer to human suffering. It's an invitation to repentance, which is literally just turning to the Lord. Job's story is the perfect example of this. God chose this consummate good guy to show us how desperately we need him. But was Job a real man of history, or is this just a morality tale? Genesis chapter 10 verse 25 tells us two sons were born to Eber. Eber, where the name Hebrew uh, most likely came from. Eber had two sons, Peleg and Joktan, or Yoktan. And on down in Genesis 10.26 it tells us Yoktan became the father of, and it lists 13 sons in this line of Shem. Shem who, you know, is father of several sons, including Eber, and then Peleg and Yoktan, and Yoktan became the father of, eventually, verse 29, Yobab. Yobab, or Eob. People think, conservative scholars think, well, maybe this is the Job of the book of Job. Genesis 10.29. And that's a possibility. But we can't be sure of that. We can't know that the timing seems right. But as to Job's existence, we can't know this for a fact from Genesis 10.29. But 
James said this, James 5.11, We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. So, James refers to Job. Well, some might say, ah, that's a little shaky. He just said you've heard of the endurance of Job, and that could be a catchphrase. He could be just referring to the old story, which was just some morality tale. Well, what does God think? It's a great place to go when you wonder about the truth. Let's see what the Lord thinks about it. Turn in your Bibles, keep a finger in Job, and go over to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 14. Ezekiel chapter 14. I believe this passage will silence the debate about whether or not Job was a real person. Beginning in verse 12, Ezekiel is prophesying. The Lord comes to him and says, I want you to speak, son of man, and give this prophecy. And it is about the holy city, Jerusalem. It says in verse 13, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it, and cut off from it both man and beast, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst by their own righteousness, they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord God. He goes on. If I were to cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and they depopulated it, and it became desolate so that no one would pass through it because of these beasts, though these three men, speaking again of Noah, Daniel, and Job, though these three men were in its midst, as I live, declares the Lord, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the country would be desolate. Verse 17, Or if I should bring a sword on that country and say, Let the sword pass through the country and cut off man and beast from it, even though these three men were in its midst as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters, but they alone would be delivered. Or if I should send a plague against that country and pour out my wrath and blood on it to cut off man and beast from it, even though Noah and Daniel and Job were in its midst as I live, declares the Lord God, They could not deliver either their son or their daughter. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. Wow. God declares Noah, Daniel, and Job as righteous men. Does Job exist? God apparently thinks he does. So we're going to take God's perspective on this, the literal perspective that Job was a real man, a good man, and a man for whom the Father desired more than a religious relationship. A man that God wanted to turn to Him and to be in a real relationship and a right relationship beyond even His behavior. Now, in verse 6, we come to a point, and some of you had questions about this on Sunday. We wade into the realm of demonology, the study of the demonic and and of Satan, and and we find out something interesting about him in verse 6. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. If you skip down to chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Again there was a day, this is now another day, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Huh. Satan has access to heaven. Really? Now, I thought... Didn't I hear somewhere that Satan was cast out of heaven? You probably did. Isaiah 14, verse 12, reads the following. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, O son of the dawn. You've been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. 
But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. Satan has obviously been cast out, kicked out, booted from heaven. There's more. Over in Ezekiel again, you can turn there or just listen as I read Ezekiel chapter 28. And these are the two passages from which we get this theology of Satan, this understanding of what happened. Ezekiel 28, and I won't go all into this tonight, but it's, uh, it's a prophecy to the king of Tyre, and yet halfway through this prophecy to this high and, and uh, mighty king, at least in his own mind, halfway through suddenly there's a shift and you recognize the prophecy is no longer about the king of Tyre, but about Satan. Down in verse 14. It says, You were the anointed cherub who covers. And I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until until unrighteousness was found in you. So we see here, both in Ezekiel and in Isaiah, this this picture of, of Satan and what happened. That he was found to be created by God. And in fact, an anointed cherub but cast out because unrighteousness was found in him. If you look in verse 17, Ezekiel 28, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you. I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. And all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you and you have become and have become terrified and you will cease to be forever. Now that has not yet been fully realized because Satan has not ceased to be. He's still present. So we're in an in-between place here, gang. He has been cast out of heaven, kicked out, booted out, but he has not been thrust into the recesses of the pit. He has not been turned to ashes. He has not ceased to exist forever. Not yet. That is yet to be, yet to come. But he still at this point, though he was cast out of heaven, and though he is alive and kicking on earth, he also, and listen to me on this, he still has access to heaven. He still has to come before the Lord. He still has to give an account of what he's doing to God. He still has to present himself, along with all the other angels, he has to present himself before the Lord. Now, I I know this might sound a little wild for some, but I'm just telling you what is going on in the book of Job. Verse 6, he came to present himself before the Lord. Satan came among them. So he's there before God in heaven presenting himself. He's not allowed to stick around, but he has a visa. So he can travel. He can be there. And he is present there. For how long? Keep your finger in Job again and turn to the book of Revelation. Chapter 12. Some of you Bible students, you may know where I'm going with this. Let it uh, seed a little deeper in you the truth. The Word of God. Revelation chapter 12. While you're turning there, a side note, we're going to go to a few different places tonight as we look at the first couple chapters of Job. But in Revelation chapter 12, you need to understand something. In the study of Revelation, and if you went through that study, you heard me say this, that you take... Take it literally unless John tells you otherwise. 
The easiest read of the book of Revelation is literal and chronological. Just take it as it is. Unless John says, okay, wait a minute. There's something I want you to see here. I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you a picture here. A metaphor. John is clear and explicit through the whole book of Revelation whenever he's going to do something that is allegorical. Otherwise, this is the way it is. And it's literal. Well, chapter 12 is one of those sections. It's a sign. It's a, what has been called a parenthetical section, like in between parentheses. John stops in the middle of Revelation and he, he gives this overall, kind of this panoramic view of God's dealings with Israel, with Israel and a portent of things to come. And verse 1 in Revelation 12 says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars, and she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. And that woman is Israel. How do you know it's Israel, Rick? Listen to the Revelation study. It's online. You can go listen to it there. But it's a great sign. And that word sign, I just want to point out, in the Greek means that by which something is made known. It's simeon. Simeon in the Greek. That by which something is made known. An explanation of something. And so that's the signs we're talking about to help us understand better here in Revelation 12. Well, the same word is used about Satan in a time soon to come. Verse 3 says, Another sign appeared in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon. Well, this great red dragon, John will a little bit later say, who, by the way, is Satan. You know, he's a picture. The dragon is a picture of Satan. This great red dragon appeared in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon having... Seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. So again, we have this sign, and it's Satan. Verse 7. tells us there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. You see, there had been a place found for them in heaven before, when they had to come and present themselves before God. There was still access before. But now, at this point, and this is a point yet to be. This is a point yet to come. Why? Watch the context. It tells us no longer a place was found for them in heaven. Verse 9, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. At that point, Satan no longer has access to heaven. When this occurs, when this battle occurs, and he's finally booted out, He won't be able to present himself before God anymore. The door will be slammed. He will be kicked on the way out. He's done. He cannot come back up anymore. Well, how do you know that's not what happened in the past, but it's what's happening in the future? The next verse. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. Satan was cast out, but still had access. At a time future, he will be finally and completely cast out with no access whatsoever, no basis on returning. We see this in Job chapter 1 verse 6 and in chapter 2 verse 1. Elsewhere in the scriptures, Zechariah chapter 3 verses 1 and 2, and you can go back and look at these and think about them more. But they indicate that at least in this season, right now, he still has some access to heaven. And he certainly is alive and well and active on planet earth. But here's what I want you to understand in all that. Go back to Job. You might want to mark Revelation 12 or just be ready to go there later on. 
Here's what I want you to know. Satan must still account for himself before God. In fact, he can't do anything without accounting to God for it. He cannot act on his own power. He has to have permission. He has to come before the Lord and give account of what he's doing. Now, I know that may upset or confuse a little bit. We'll come back to this thought. But all angels, including Satan, if we're just to take the Scripture literally, are accountable to the Lord. He is the Lord Almighty, Shaddai. Remember, Shaddai is used 31 times in the book of Job. Meaning Almighty. Which means there is nothing that happens that catches God off guard. Your pain, your problems, your heartaches, your tragedy in life, guess what? God knew it was coming. He was aware of that fully. Well, why do you want to come? Well, hold on. We'll get there. But the point is, he knew. He is never caught off guard. He's never shocked. <laughs> Did you see what happened on Whippy Island last night? I, was, I couldn't believe it. Angels gather around. We've got to do something quick. We've got to react. God never reacts. God always acts. He's always first. Satan's very reactionary, on the other hand. But I love what we see in Revelation 12. There's coming a day when Michael and the angels finally get to wage war against Satan. A heavenly war. And Michael, note that, Michael throws Satan out. Not God. God's got other concerns more important than Satan. And so an angel throws out what was once an angel. Satan will lose that visa and will be barred from the heavens. And the response is great. All praise breaks out. Now the kingdom is ready to happen. Now it's come. Now salvation in Christ is secure. Satan said, you know, his putrid presence is gone. No wonder the heavens rejoice. We don't have to hear from that stinker anymore. What about Satan? Well, he's all dressed up with nowhere to go. So at that time, when he lands back on earth, as you read on through Revelation, he will rage. The Bible tells us because he knows his time is short. Three and a half years to be exact. He will have, at that point, to do all that he can. He will be out of control. And then, well, Revelation 20 tells us there will be an angel who binds him up and puts him in the pit. Again, God's doing other things. Will you take care of Satan for me? Yeah, I got it, Lord. And he will be put down into the recesses of the pit. Back in Job, chapter 1, verse 7. So here's Satan presenting himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, Now, by the way, it's not because God didn't know where he came from. But he is forcing Satan to give account of what he's been up to. Where where do you come? The saint answered to the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Peter tells us that right now in the present, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, your adversary the devil, and you know devil, Satan means adversary, that's what his name means. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And this is the present state of things. I won't go there. We don't have time. The devil prowls around. He is on earth right now. He's doing his thing. And we see it in all the evils and the ills and the pain and even, even the sickness and the, all the stuff that's going on around us. It's because he is active and at work. On the other hand, the good news in first, or Second Chronicles 16.9, we're told the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout, throughout the earth 
that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You see, Satan seeks to devour. God seeks to support those who will give their hearts to him. Yes, we have an enemy. Yes, the attacks will come. Yes, Brit Hume will say Christianity, of all things, on TV, and people will freak out. But the Lord is looking to support those whose heart is completely His. Well, Satan begins his rampage now on the life of a good man. How does he do it? He begins with accusation. If you want to jot a few things down, Job's goodness is accused. Verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Well, Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? (laughs) I mean, of course. Of course he fears you. Look at what you've given him. Look at the life that he has. Now again, Revelation 12.10 calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. But I want to point out to you what we saw Sunday. Think about this a little more. Satan doesn't incite God here. God incites Satan. The Lord is the one who raises the issue of Job in the first place. Have you considered my servant Job? Now the word considered in the Hebrew is an interesting word. It has to do with, well, examination. But it's examination to do harm. As if someone was out on a mission of reconnaissance to see where people are lined up on the enemy line so that they could then come back and attack. That's what the word is there. It's it's sum. If you want to spell it out, just uh, to have in your notes, S-U-W-M. Sum is how it's pronounced in the Hebrew. And it means to examine, to spy out. Have you been spying on my servant Job? You see, I think the Lord knows something here. He knows what has already been going on. He knows, and this is just my opinion, I could be wrong, but I think the Lord knows that Satan's already been considering Job, and that's why he raises the issue. He knows Satan has already had some spies considering this good man and trying to figure out how can he take this guy down. So the Lord raises the issue. He's he's never caught off guard, as I said before. He's not surprised. He draws out Satan's intentions for his own godly purposes. And I love that. God uses Satan to accomplish what God needs to accomplish. To accomplish the good. Even though Satan intends evil, God always has that good intention. Something else that he's doing. There's an important tip for spiritual warfare here, and please understand this. Satan can only see things from one perspective, and that is evil. We talked about this yesterday. Satan can only see this from the perspective of evil. That is so important to understand. There are things he does not get. His mind, his sensibility is so warped and so twisted by his own evil, there are things he can't understand. Humility does not make sense to Satan. Love. Why would you love? Lust makes a lot of sense to Satan because you get something out of it. But not love. When he comes at you, when he comes at me, Satan assumes that our response is going to be what his response would be if we attacked him. I mean, do you understand? This is so important. When he attacks, he thinks, now I'm going to go after Sheldon here, and I know when I go after him that he's going to respond the way I would. He's going to freak out. This is going to be great. This is is the way that Satan thinks. This is the mindset. He doesn't get humility. He doesn't get repentance. 
He doesn't understand confession or love. These things are lost in translation to his warped mind. Well, how do you know all this? Well, look at the next couple verses. Verse 10, he says, Have you not made a hedge about Job and his house and all that he has on every side? You bless the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now, touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Why would Satan say that? Because that's what Satan did. God cast him out, and Satan curses God daily to his face. This is what Satan does. This is his reaction. You get in my way, and and I'm coming after you, and I will curse you. So Satan assumes... That if God will allow Job to be hurt, Job will do the same thing. That's the warped, twisted mind of the enemy. He's not objective. He is subjective. And in his subjectivity, he is blurred by his own evil. That's why, my friends, things like confession are so powerful. Because Satan doesn't get it. To humble yourself before the right hand of God, before the might of God, he doesn't understand that. It doesn't make sense to him. You're in a relationship struggle. You're battling out. And and you decide, I'm going to take the downside and be humble in this. It doesn't make any sense. It lets all the wind out of his sails. It is a great tactic of spiritual warfare to walk by the fruit of the Spirit because Satan doesn't understand. And it throws him for a loop. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.1, The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to the deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, and I've shared this line before, listen to this, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Conscience is seared. A seared conscience is a demonic thing because sin, evil, and wickedness affects our vision, affects our ability to see things clearly. Wickedness affects our assumptions about other people. Until we start to think, if our consciences are seared, we start to think like Satan does. Well, if I go after Spencer, (laughs) then he's going to freak out. But if I went after Spencer, and his response was, as Jesus said, to turn the other cheek and offer it to me as well, that really throws wickedness for a loop. So Satan says, touch all that he has, he'll surely curse you to your face. Verse 12. Then the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him. You can't touch him, but you can touch everything that he has. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord, and so it begins. The accusation is level, permission is granted, and Satan fires off the first round. Verse 13. Now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, the messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. And they also slew the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died, and I alone have escaped to tell you. If you read through this and you were not considering it from a a spiritual perspective, if you didn't know Satan was behind all this, You could easily say in all of these cases, these were either attacks of men or they were natural disasters. 
natural disasters. But we know Satan was behind it. It's amazing to me how rarely people think that the devil is behind any natural disaster today. Any bad thing that happens, the blame doesn't tend to go to Satan. The blame goes to God. In fact, we even have a word for it. We call it acts of God. When was the last time did a newscaster come on and say, a hurricane hit the southern shores and it was a true act of Satan? <laughs> and yet, and yet, these were acts of Satan in the book of Job. It's interesting, verse 16. The second messenger comes along and what does he say? He says, the fire of God fell from heaven. It wasn't the fire of God. It was an act of Satan. But the blame gets leveled at the Lord for anything that happens that's bad. It's thrown back up at the Father. We even, we even do that sometimes. God, why are you causing this horrible thing to happen to me? How could you allow this? Well, granted, He may have allowed it. Why, again, we'll talk about in a minute. But it doesn't mean that it's of God when the bad things are going on and, and the hurtful things are happening. The fire of God fell from heaven. We know that's a euphemism for lightning. You know, we can, we can read that and assume lightning probably stuck in a very dry field and it caught fire and all the servants and the sheep that were in that field ended up burning. A tragedy, a horrible thing happened. The fire of God? Yeah, but Rick, again, God allowed it. I know that. But before we touch on that, remember that Satan is the one who brings all of these tragedies about for Job. The world wants to blame God. But this is Satan's doing. It's Satan's attack. And by the way, the world remains the devil's playground. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 calls him the God of this world. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says he's the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And Jesus, three times in his Thursday night uh, teaching to his followers, John 12, 31, 14, 30, and 16, 11, he calls Satan the prince of this world. There is an authority there. There is a power that Satan wields in this world, on this planet. The story is told, you remember it in Mark chapter 4, where the apostles are out on the boat in in the Galilee. Jesus is with them and he's asleep in the hold and the storm comes up. And it's all hell breaking loose. I mean, it's bad news out there. And they're afraid they're going to drown. And they wake up, Jesus! Do you remember what Jesus says when he stands on the bow of that ship? What did he say? Peace, be still. Peace, be still. Jesus literally... The word peace there is not peace. He doesn't say shalom. Be still. What he says there in the Greek, it's siopao. It is be muzzled. Shut up. Put a sock in it. Be still. (laughs) Why would Jesus tell the storm to be muzzled? It's the same word that Jesus uses every time He tells a demon to shut up. Every time He says, be silenced to a demon in in the Gospels, He uses that word, siopao. Be muzzled. Why? Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Satan has ability to even bring about natural disaster here in the world. And Jesus says, be muzzled. Wouldn't Wouldn't it be great to be able to say that to Satan? Wouldn't you love to shut him up? We'll come back Sunday and we'll talk about how to do that. But notice what 
this first attack does now to Job. First, he is accused. Job is accused. His goodness. Secondly, Job's legacy is removed. And that's the result of the first attack. He goes from riches to rags instantaneously. Three messengers, one on the tail of the next, telling him everything that you've achieved, everything that you've accomplished, everything that you've worked for, all of your success, all of the outcome, even to the point of your children, your very legacy, gone in an instant. What would you do if you lost everything? Everything that you had worked for, invested yourself in, if in an instant it was all gone, would you lose yourself? Now, an awful lot of people would. Sadly, in our world, we base so much of who we are on what we've done. I have six children. Accomplishment. We have a church here. Look at what we've done. I built a business. Look at me. I have wealth stacked up in bank accounts. Look at what I have accomplished. But when we lose it all, gang, when people lose it all, they take their life. Because all that they had tried for and strived for was how they defined themselves. Satan thinks all he has to do is take it all away from Job. Take it all and Job is going to lose it. Job doesn't lose it. But Satan thinks he's going to. That's Satan's angle on this whole thing. What was God's? Why would God allow this horrible thing to happen? Well, (laughs) Job loses it all and what does he have left? He has one thing left. He has the Lord. Of course. Of course. I love John's take on this, you Bible students. Remember how John refers to himself throughout his Gospel? I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. He never names himself in the Gospel of John. But every time he refers to himself, he just says, well, the disciple whom Jesus loved leaned up against Jesus' breast. The disciple whom Jesus loved was there. Peter asked the disciple whom Jesus loved, what's the Lord talking about? That was John's self-definition. The disciple whom Jesus loved. You know what's beautiful about that? It has nothing to do with anything John had done. It didn't tout his accomplishments in the least. It's all about Jesus. And if you are in Christ Jesus, He defines you, not what you've accomplished, not your stuff. Not your legacy. I've heard talk about legacy even in the church. I tell you what, there's only one legacy that matters. And that is, did you leave Jesus with someone before you left? That's the only one. Not, did you provide for your wife and kids? Oh, gentlemen, please do. You know, that's not, I'm not saying don't leave them in you know, squalor and rags and like my family would be. Don't do that. <laughs> but leave Jesus. That's the one thing that lasts. It's faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, what, what successes can you tout to gain that title loved by Jesus? There aren't any. What matters is His love for you, not your legacy for Him. Oh, okay, so I guess what you're saying, Pastor, so we just then we get into Jesus' love and we just sit back and do nothing. No. No, because as Paul says, the love of Christ controls us. Or as other translations say, compels us. Man, if you're sitting in the love of Christ, you're not sitting. If you know the love of Christ in your life, you can't do anything, but you've got to go. 
You've got to share. You've got to tell. You're going to leave a legacy of love because Christ compels you. His love controls you if you know His love. But don't get caught up in your accomplishment or your achievement. The size of this church will never matter in terms of impressing anybody. But the number of souls saved, people who have found Jesus Christ, whether we realize it or not, that's what matters. Going on, verse 20. Here's Job's response to all this. Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. There are two basic ways people can respond to the Lord in seasons of great loss. And perhaps you're there. You have two choices. You can blame God or you can worship God. Job chose to worship. And it was the right choice. Remember Sunday's question, do we believe God knows what He's doing? If we truly believe that, no matter how bad the circumstance of our life is, our choice in that bad season is worship, not blame. If we believe God truly is who He says He is, Shaddai, Almighty. Now a second round is chambered as Satan prepares to fire off. Verse 1 of chapter 2, Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? (laughs) And I almost hear, God probably didn't do this. If it were me, I would have said, Have you considered my servant Job? Nah, 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 nah. And Satan answered, God said, There is no one like him in the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Verse 4. Well, Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, you put forth your hand now. Touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Why does Satan say that? Because Satan would curse God to his face. Because that's what Satan would do. And that's how he proceeds. He thinks you're going to do what he would do when he tries to incite you or hurt you or bring you into pain. Verse 6, So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your power, only spare his life. And then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. And so now number three, Job's life is abused. His life is abused. It becomes absolutely horrific for Job. Let me give you some descriptions. Just pull out a few verses from further on in the book of Job just for your... uh, Interest tonight. He said in Job 7 5, My flesh is clothed with worms. He says, Clothed with worms and a crust of dirt, my skin hardens and runs. Job 19 17, he says, My breath is offensive to my wife. Now I know some of you husbands already have that problem, but it was bad for Job. 
My breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own brothers. And he says, My bone clings to my skin and my flesh. Job 30, verse 16. Days of affliction have seized me. At night it pierces my bones within me, and my gnawing pains take no rest. By a great force my garment is distorted. What does he mean? His skin. His earth suit. He says, by a great force, my skin is distorted. Distorted, It binds me about as the collar of my coat. He says, my skin doesn't even look normal anymore. It's all tightened up. And as he said in another place, it's either hard or it's oozing. It's running, pus, and it's disgusting. It gets worse. He says, I am seething within and cannot relax. Literally, my bowels are boiling. So on top of all this outward horrible stuff, internally... He is in horrific pain. That, by the way, is the reason for the bad breath. It's what's going on. It's churning and burning inside. I had a uh, friend, bless her soul. <laughs> we went to Honduras on a mission trip with a bunch of teenagers. And on the last day, we're in the airport there in Tegucigalpa, Honduras. And she had gotten a horrible flu bug. And without being too graphic, it was coming out both ends. And there was nothing she could do about it. Everything was packed in suitcases, and some of the, the gentler women who were on the trip were trying to help her out, you know, and it, I mean, she was an absolute mess. And, and I thought at the time, oh, I can't even think of a worse place to be, to be that sick, and to be in a third world airport with no, you can't even get your stuff. It's terrible. That's what we're talking about here. Job is, I mean, he is a mess. Days of affliction, he said, confront me. He said in Job chapter 30, verse 30, he said, My skin turns black on me and my bones burn with fever. You know what he's talking about there? He's not talking about the beautiful shades of brown from Africa. When he says, My skin turns black on me, have you seen? I, I did it just because I'm a glutton for punishment. I looked at frostbite pictures online today. That's what he's talking about. I mean, it is nasty. The skin goes, it's almost a greenish black. It's this dark, horrible color. This is happening to Job. I'm not telling you this to gross you out. I'm telling you this because this is no parable. This is what happened to Job. He lost everything, everything he had ever tried to accomplish or achieve, and then his whole body is falling apart. He is an absolute wreck. You have not experienced pain like Job is experiencing. I'm telling you. We have all had rough times. Some of us rougher than others. You have not experienced the pain of this man, Job. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, across the board, this guy is an abject torment and he's falling apart. And his friends and his wife, his friends, they're going to show up. How about his wife? Verse 9, she said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Thanks, hon. You know, to be fair to Job's wife, I get it. I do not handle the pain of my loved ones very well. I may have shared with you before when Cheryl was dealing with some kidney stone problems. This was a couple of years ago. And she's in pain and I'm standing by the bed just going, What do I do? What do I do? You know, she's like, I just need to go to the... Okay, I'll get the car. Try get the car. Just shut up and get... You know... I mean, I, I just I, I don't handle other people's pain well at all. And if I were Job's wife, which I know is kind of a twisted, weird thing to think, but if, I understand that position of she's looking at her husband 
she is dealing with the emotional pain of a mother who's lost all of her children, all of her husband's wealth and riches and well-being gone, and now she's looking at the man she loves and he is dying in front of her. She's had it. I don't even know if she really meant for him to curse God. She may have just been speaking out of her pain, as oftentimes people do when life gets so bad. Curse God and die, she says. Gang, sometimes the worst influence or advice comes from those who are closest to us. And it's not because they mean to give bad advice, it's just because they're hurting because we're hurting. And they don't, they're feeling our pain sometimes worse than we are, which is why wisdom is not found in feelings or emotions. Wisdom must be grounded in the truth. And you always go to the truth for wisdom and, and how to act and how to behave and how to deal with circumstances. You don't go off emotions that come flying off the handle. And so though Job's life is abused, Job's wife, number four, is refused. In that, Job refuses to curse God. Verse 10, he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. By the way, that word foolish there is Nabal. You guys remember Nabal? 1 Samuel 25. He was a character who David sent some men over to Nabal and he had actually, his men had taken good care of Nabal's men and so they go over and ask, hey, can you guys help us out with some provisions and stuff? And Nabal says, no way, I'm not going to help you. This guy's a complete idiot. And so his name now becomes the word for fool in the Hebrew. I like that. Nabal, and this is the name that is ascribed to Job's wife. You're speaking foolishly here. There may be a time when husbands and wives, when you have to refuse the anger of your spouse toward the Lord. Some of you have been there. There may be a time where your spouse is just livid and they're they're venting all. They're not worshiping God in hardship. They are blaming God and their anger is venting toward God and they're trying to get you to do the same. And you're going to have to choose between a spouse's words and God's word. May I encourage you that the best thing you can do in that situation is, like Job, put Jesus first and then love your spouse by His power. Put Jesus first, love your spouse by His power. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter says to the wives, he says, there's a way to win your husbands without speaking a word. When you show them the love and the submission of, of Christ, you can, you can actually win them. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.16, How do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? And so Job refuses his wife's distraught curse, but he doesn't refuse his wife. How do you know that? Because he has children again with her later. Because she's still around as the story goes on. We don't really hear from her or anything that she says or how she handles all this, but we know Job stays with her and God blesses Job with seven more sons and three more daughters who, by the way, are described as absolutely gorgeous. And his wife is there. How he handles his marriage in his pain impacts his marriage later. And the same can be said of us as well. Well, chapter 11, now when Job's three friends heard all this adversity that had come upon them, they each won from his own place, Eliphaz the Timonite and Bildad the Shuhite, shortest you know, man in the Bible, and Zophar the Naamathite, they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and to comfort him. Verse 12, 
when they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. He looked so bad, they couldn't even see him for who he was. That cannot be Job. Let me say something before we get into, as we will beginning next week, these, these three friends of Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and so far. They really do love Job. They really care greatly about this man. Now, the so-called words of wisdom that they bring to him later are words of stupidity and foolishness, and they are completely wrong. But they do love Job. As we see, they are weeping. It says, Each of them tore his robe, and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. And they're looking at this man who's who's been accused and his legacy removed and his life abused and his wife's curse refused. And now, number five and fifth, final one, Job's friends are confused. They look at Job and they do not get this. It does not make sense, especially by the theology of the day, that if you're righteous, you're blessed. They believe that about Job. He was a good, a righteous, a you know, good man. And so he was blessed, but now that's all taken away and they're just going, huh. And over the next several chapters of this book, it's this dialogue between them and the friends. They're speaking. They shouldn't be. They should just keep their mouths shut, but they're speaking, trying to figure this out because they're so confused by what they're seeing. What God allowed to happen, what Satan's doing, is completely challenging their theology. Verse 13 tells us, Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. Now there is wisdom. At least they start out well. They do what we could all do, gain presence. Presence brings far more comfort than words tend to bring. I've I've seen this over the years in ministry. When friends and family are in the midst of painful circumstance, they rarely remember what we said, but they remember if we were there. They remember if we showed up. Unfortunately, when Job begins his lament, his friends go from comforting to condemning in a heartbeat, and they're no help to him at all. We'll begin to hear from them next week. There are a couple of lessons to draw out from tonight beyond what we've already seen. In the opening pages of this old book, one of the first lessons of Job that we have to deal with is what we said earlier, nothing can happen to us unless God allows it. Nothing happens, bad or good, my friends, nothing happens to you unless God allows it. Is anyone still struggling with that fact? Is that kind of hard to deal with? Satan caused all the pain to come to Job, but God knew about it, God even incited it, And understand that what brings consternation to many people about this, to think that God knew and allowed it anyway, though it would upset some, it should bring us comfort. It should bring us incredible peace. To know that God knew ahead of time, His foreknowledge, listen, His foreknowledge, means that He's fully aware of what we're facing before we face it. He completely knows what's coming. He knew before it all came down. And because He knew, He prepared us for the pain. Sometimes we don't recognize that, but we hit the skids. And life goes wrong and everything's bad. And we're sitting around in that and we fail to recognize all the things that have happened in our life before that point to prepare us for that point. That we would be ready to handle 
what was coming down the pike. God prepares us. I have so much peace in knowing that. That if something horrific is right around the corner for me, God already knows and today, today He's working on my heart and getting me ready for it. Because He loves me so much. 1 Corinthians 10.13, Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such is as common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure that. Now in the past, I've heard that verse and I've said, well that's great when you're talking about temptation. He's given you a way out of temptation. But what about pain? What about heartache? What about problems? Does He provide a way out from that? Listen, pain itself is a tempter. And so for God to provide a way out of temptation is for God to provide a way out of our pain. It's the same thing. Because when we have those times of pain, we can be led one way or another. Either our pain will cause us to demand God explain Himself, as some people do, questioning His sovereignty. Or our pain may cause us to deny His loving kindness toward us. Well, God obviously doesn't care about me, if there even is a God. People will rail on that, questioning His grace or His existence. Or, pain can drive us to our knees. Where like Job, we worship. We don't understand. We don't know why. But we believe He does. And so we worship before a Father who we know, we know cares about us. How do we know God cares about us? Well, God knows pain. He knows it full well. Hebrews 12.3 Consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. I just want to see a show of hands. How many people have been on a cross lately? Some might say, and I've actually heard this said, I'd rather be on the cross than go through what I'm going through right now. No, you wouldn't. Not the way Jesus was on the cross. Oh, you may think physically that the pain you're experiencing, or the pain a loved one is experiencing, possibly through through cancer that that is eating away at somebody, and and it's awful to see that, and you think, they're in torment here. At least the cross was short term. Yeah, but the cross wasn't just physical pain for Jesus. It was every ounce, every weight of emotional and spiritual anguish dumped on Him from all of us for all eternity. Can you imagine? No, you can't. I can't. Jesus knows pain. And if you are hurting, you know, you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt, okay, He gets it. He hurt more than I hurt right now. And He did it for me. He did it willingly. He wasn't caught off guard by it. He went into it choosing the pain for the joy set before Him. If you think Jesus can't bear your situation, the Hebrew writer would tell you, consider what Jesus bore on the cross. And then ask yourself, does He understand? Not only does He understand, He is faithful. As we said, He's already prepared you for what's coming. He's provided for you to deal with whatever pain is coming around the corner or is, is there at this time. 2 Peter 1.3 His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. One last thing. In addition to recognizing His preparation, remember this. 
God's purpose is eternal. His purpose is eternal. There is a greater preparation behind the pain that goes beyond the pain leading up to eternal life. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. He says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, the house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, talking about our bodies, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. What did Job say? Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return there. Well, guess what? Job was half right. Naked I came from my mother's womb. But gang, when I die or rise up in glory as we sang, I will not be naked. I will be clothed with the eternal. My eternal body is waiting, my body's waiting to be glorified, to be prepared, to, to, to be lifted up. And the Bible tells us, Isaiah 61.10, I'm going to be clothed with the robe of righteousness. Naked I come from my mother's womb, but guess what? I'm going to be clothed with righteousness. The Bible says in Revelation 19.8, I'm going to be clothed with fine linen, bright and clean, which are the righteous acts of the saints. Now, now catch that. If the fine linen, bright and clean, which clothes me, which clothes us as the bride, if it's the righteous acts of the saints, that tells us the things we do by faith in Jesus Christ are worth something. They do count for something. They can't save us. They can't get us in. But our acts of faith, which God counts as righteousness, even in the midst of tragedy, our acts of faith are woven into the fine linen, bright and clean. God's purposes are eternal. When you, when I find ourselves in those places of pain beyond understanding, the two things I would encourage you to remember are He has prepared you for it. Whether it feels like it or not, you have been prepared for it. And His purpose in you, for you, is eternal in nature. Not immediate, not temporary. He's not going to slap a bandage on your heart and say, good to go. No, He's going to heal your heart. In the meantime, how do we bear up under the weight of satanic accusations and attacks and abuses? Well, we're going to talk about that Sunday morning.